Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. I am still Matt Bazell. And I am Issa Knight. That's my terrible Meryl Streep. <laughs> I sound like Dracula. <laughs> uh, well, you made this, made this easier for me, but audience, you have to make a choice. You have to pick me or Ethan. So just go ahead and tweet those in at SpoilersCast. And oh. uh, we'll just see who's uh, who's surviving the next week. Oh, no. Uh, please keep in mind, I didn't do a terrible accent at the start of oh, the Oh, I shouldn't have done the, the accent. I'm going to be chosen to, <laughs> well, to die. So if we haven't made it clear yet, we had watched AFI's Top 100, number 91, Sophie's Choice. Sophie's Choice. Starring Meryl Streep, Kevin Klein, and whoever Stingo is. Uh, Peter McNichol. Who, Peter McNichol. Uh, it was also in one of my other favorite films, uh, which I noticed immediately, Dracula Dead and Loving It. He plays Renfield. <laughs> what I had noticed about Peter McNichol's uh, filmography is that he is a predominantly just a voice actor yeah like he's been in so many cartoon batmans and other things and actually kevin klein has sort of gone that way as well you might know him as mr fish odor from bob's burgers oh is he really he's mr fish odor and oh, i couldn't wow. stop hearing it once i found that out he um kevin klein uh, i believe he's from st louis and he's big in the theater scene and one of my dear friends Brooke Edwards, shout out to Brooke, even though she probably doesn't listen. She was the first recipient of the Kevin Klein Award for theater in St. Louis. For, for mustaches, no? Uh, well, ho- hopefully not for mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so as you can see, Sophie's Choice really launched these people's careers. And then Meryl Streep, she doesn't, she really, we never heard from her again, you know? Kind of one of right. those one and done sort of one actresses that you've never heard. This was Kevin Klein's film feature film debut. Did you say that already? No, I didn't. Yeah, this is his his debut. This is the first feature film he'd been in. I'm sure he'd been in theater before that. Well, he's very good in it. Yeah. And Meryl Streep is a dream in this film. Oh, my! be still my beating heart, Meryl Streep. Which is interesting because, you know, I know who Meryl Streep is because I feel like you can't escape that. Right. I don't think I've ever seen a film with her in it. What? Yeah. Don't admit that out loud. <laughs> well, this is the whole conceit of the podcast, right? Is that I don't know anything about films. Right. And But just applying my sort of unique set of skills <laughs> to wow. to film, I, I sort of uncover some things about it. Yeah, so I don't think I've Wait made a, a significant film. We have to look at this. We have to sure, look sure, at her sure. filmography and say you really have never seen her in any of oh, these yeah, films. Yeah. We need Take to look time. at this. I will admit I've seen her in one film. What? Uh... I don't remember what the title is. It's one with Alec Baldwin, and they're old, and it's like an old person romantic comedy. Oh, uh, is that It's Complicated? I think it's that. Like... It is That Is Complicated, right? Yes. Okay, let's see. It's also got um, Steve Martin. She yeah. was, I mean, you haven't seen Deer Hunter? Nope. She's in AI, that Steven nope. Spielberg film. Um, no. Manchurian Candidate, the remake. Negative. What else? I, Devil Wears Prada is obviously the Not big one. Not even a little bit. Oh my god. Mamma Mia? You haven't seen Mamma Mia? Or Julie and Julia? Nope. Fantastic Mr. Fox? No, actually. Oh my god. It has George Clooney in it, doesn't it? It, uh, Yes, it does. Hmm. She was also in the new August Osage County, which again, shout out to my undergrad. We were the first, the first college, right, to, or university to perform August Osage County on stage uh, uh, after its Broadway run. It. But yeah, she was in that most recently. She was in The Giver most recently. Nope. A bunch of other stuff. I mean, she's been in a thousand great things. But anyway, I can't believe you've only ever seen like this and <laughs> fucking it's complicated. Right. Well, I mean, it's great. <laughs> she's a great actress, obviously. Yes. 
her accent is pretty damn near flawless. Oh, spot on, man. Even the ways in which she sort of mangles English yes. is perfect. So I really enjoyed hearing her. Also learned that Polish sounds really close to Russian because there's a lot of words I could actually understand mm. in that film. Oh, yeah, because so, you have some Russian. Got some Russian in me. Right. In any case, Sophie's Choice, based on a book. Yes. Now, Ethan, we have some history with the author of this book. Do we? A Mr. William Styron. Okay. Do you recall Confessions of Nat Turner? Yes. <gasps> Styron wrote the fictionalized account in which Nat Turner and I forget the woman's name. Oh, that was him. That's that's Bill Styron, yeah. He's kind of a bad dude then. Yes. Ethan and I took a graduate class in Civil War literature and Confessions of Nat Turner. You know, an actual, well, I'm not getting into the, the basics of it, but. You With know, Larry S. Reynolds. Yeah, allegedly uh, J. Reynolds. But or J. Reynolds, sorry, Larry J. Reynolds. He was my thesis advisor, and he's very clear on the J, so I wanted to make yes. sure. That we that Nat Turner, Confession Nat Turner, you know, nonfiction, um, not really a book, but almost like a novella, accounts really of his crimes, so to speak. And there's some sort of, you know, difficulties with that, right, finding out the truth in there. But Bill Styron writes a book and fictionalizes this, right? So And he calls it the same thing. It's Confessions. He calls it the Confessions of Nat Turner, exactly. And so we, talk, we saw a documentary with Bill Styron in it, and he did not come off very well. No, because it it's it sort of rewrites history and there's it's it's racist basically yes and so we have uh, mr siren back at it with sophie's choice yeah i don't know how i feel about him now well we didn't read the novel we watched the damn movie so <laughs> well the, the film itself actually i could see siren's siren's fingerprints all over it yeah it's a very literary movie right? oh yeah so before we go any further ethan why don't you give us your good old summary. Yeah, let's do that. So, Sophie's Choice is the story of Stingo, perhaps the worst name in the world. Uh, but it's I'll, a story. I'll second that. Yeah, the story of Stingo, who's a young writer from the South, and he moves up to Brooklyn and meets Sophie, who's a Polish Holocaust survivor, and Nathan. Uh, her boyfriend. Stingo, who lives below them in his pink boarding house, becomes best friends with them, but soon discovers that Nathan is highly unstable. He also learns about Sophie's past, how Nathan uh, nursed her back to health after her arrival to America, how her father was a Nazi sympathizer, and how she survived Auschwitz. He eventually learns that Nathan is not a biochemist, uh, as he claims, but instead he's a paranoid schizophrenic, a fact that he then um, hides from Sophie. After a violent episode following Nathan's proposal to Sophie, Stingo takes her towards the south. He proposes to her in their hotel room, and Sophie finally reveals her deepest secret. Her children were not forcibly taken from her, as she's previously claimed um, on her arrival to Auschwitz. As she entered, she was forced to choose which child would be killed and which would go to the internment camp. So she chooses her daughter's immediate death. After explaining this, she agrees to go with Stingo down south to his hometown, but she says she won't marry him. They share a night of passion, which is Stingo's first, and Sophie leaves him in the middle of the night to return to Nathan. Stingo then returns to Brooklyn to find that Nathan and Sophie have committed suicide by taking arsenic. Cyanide, I believe. Er, is it cyanide? Did I say mm -hmm. Ah, oh, it's cyanide, you're right. Stingo then recites Emily Dickinson's poem, Ample Make This Bad, which Sophie was fond of as the film ends. Yeah, so you make it sound so simple, but this is a two-hour, 37-minute oh, yeah. runtime that kind of 
layers these things upon itself but i think you did a good job of sort of disentangling that for the audience yeah. but uh we don't learn about sophie's choice as it were until the end of the film yes the very and end nathan's paranoid schizophrenic though i had pretty much called that early on in the film in my watching of it yeah uh, isn't made clear until his brother gets involved about mm -hmm. two-thirds of the way through the film yeah i guess we should i'm, I'm gonna reiterate that this is a long long movie Mm -hmm. and a lot happens but if you if you had to where would you cut from it oh i mean if i had to i would probably cut maybe the first there's a lot of stuff in the first third that maybe could go but then you don't really get that sort of rich relationship between the three of them yeah and you don't like right then this whole idea that sophie Sophie's history that comes out really slowly and it comes out in in bits and pieces that again are revealed so like Sophie originally says you know that her father was a professor and you know they rounded up the they rounded up you know the anti-nazi people and whatever and then it of course comes out later that he was a nazi sympathizer and was one of the earliest people to call for the extermination of jews right and she's really shameful about that just like she tells us you know both of my i had to give up one of my kids one of my my daughter went to the you know she went to to the chambers the gas chambers and my son went to the you know the children's work camp but of course then we find out at the end she was forced to choose which one immediately they weren't just taken from her right and uh, yeah and all this stuff with nathan he's always in and out it's unclear as to whether at least early in the film it, it is kind of, i mean i think there is a little bit of doubt whether or not sophie actually is cheating on him but obviously he's a paranoid schizophrenic so she's not he's just well that was the question i had because the film i don't think ever definitively tells us sure he's a paranoid schizophrenic but it sounds like he's been following her right as yeah. single points out and she gets this watch it's too much money more than she can afford but that doesn't matter now is what she says oh so maybe she really what yeah well this is one of the big themes of this film i think is the where where does the truth lie right right there's there are so many different lies being sown the truth itself is seems really hard to disentangle and i think part of the presentation of this film is makes it as such can i make a serious error in our order of our show yeah i want to give you my thesis because you just stomped all over it oh good <laughs> this movie is not about the nature of truth so much as it's about the possession of it there is question about the truth but it's not about who's right or wrong it's just like what's to be believed and who gets to label this or that truth right mm -hmm. so we've got young rider from the south which as an aside virginia is you know i had to travel 24 hours in a car up to virginia it doesn't really feel that south to me so um here in texas <laughs> we don't really see how that is so south but in any case and he writes about his experience as a 12 year old boy losing his mother right and we yeah. know very much about how writers appropriate truth, right? And yeah. how you can put a new label on it. So he's working through that, labeling it truth. We've got that sort of postmodern element of how do you use truth? How do you redefine truth, right? Sort of Tim O'Brien's things that carried. Oh, right, yeah. Well, and, and he's the narrator of the film as well, or at least an older version of him, that, that adds another layer. How much do we, I mean, you can't trust any, any narrator. Uh, and so, you know, how much of this is his looking bad you know what i mean there are just there are layers Absolutely. and layers of and so sophie and nathan are engaged to be married despite the fact that 
Sophie doesn't know about Nathan's paranoid schizophrenia, or if she does, she is at least deluding herself into thinking it's not a thing. Oh, he just likes to, to walk the streets at night, right? That's just what he does. Right. Or, you know, he's just a very passionate person. Well, um, he's a bipolar schizophrenic, it seems like. This is this leads into, I'll get to my thesis in a minute, but this leads into another important theme that I think this film is dealing with, and that's guilt and atonement. Because I don't know that she necessarily doesn't know that something's wrong with, I mean, she's got to know something's wrong with Nathan. And I think part of the reason she goes back is because she's punishing herself. Because she feels right. guilty, and this is the only way she feels she can atone for the things that she's done. And and I mean, not only this horrible choice she has to make with her children, but throughout, you know, her time in the concentration camp, you know, she plays up the fact that she's not a Jew and, you know, says like, I'm Polish and I'm a Christian. Well, this goes back to the appropriation of truth, right? She uses her father who she hates at this point, uses her father's writings to try to save herself. So it's not that she is a good Polish anti-semitic pro-nazi citizen with aryan features she just happens to fall into that and then her father she uses his writing despite being against that right she goes to the ghetto she looks at these people doomed for extermination and you see some sort of sympathy or guilt there but then she appropriates that right so it's the appropriation of truth yet again and this leads into my thesis statement for this film so i think this film is says that you know being forced to do anything to survive haunts you and then makes it impossible for you to then truly live past that sort of trauma, right? So she knows all these terrible things. She was forced to, you know, she's in bed with the with in the concentration camp with the the Nazi. Well, they're not in bed, but they're the sitting commandant. on the bed. Yeah, the commandant. Hess, I believe, is his name. Uh, yeah, and she tells him, "I helped write this, the first, you know, exterminate the Jews thing." Um, that I can't talk, obviously, but that's what she right. She says all these things, even though that's not necessarily true. I mean, yes, she did literally help write it physically, but you know, she's stretching the truth. She's willing to, you know, give up that to survive or to try to save her children. Right, which I think is interesting because you pointed out two very important things: the link she's going to to survive, and the fact that she's burdened with survivor's guilt. She has yes. post-traumatic stress, right? Because you just, you know, she's lived beyond. And Nathan points this out in one of his tirades. Right. What did you What did you do? Why are so many people dead but not you? Right. And he's an ethnic Jew. Yes. Um, and she's not. So he has this simmering hate for her underneath his his fanatical love. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he says, you know, how did you get out, Sophie? How did you make it out but no one else? Yeah. So she's that calls into being for us, the audience, her very real survivor's guilt. And going back to the idea about fidelity, or the thing that Nathan gets Mm -hmm. um, angry about is fidelity, and whether that's imagined or not, in the camps, she is being told by the resistance to sleep with uh, Hess, Mm -hmm. the commandant, to get the radio and then um, help the resistance. The guard, when she's forced to make her choice at the end of the film, says, I'd love to get into bed with you. Uh, And that's the door opening for her to save one of her children as opposed to none. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, that shows up, and we have the idea of her getting the watch. And then she, in fact, does sleep with Stingo at the end yeah, before and, going back to Nathan. And she, the, the, her, her first boyfriend, when we get the first like big flashback, she was married, and, and she was sleeping with, the, she had a lover. You know right, I mean? so, that's right. You're absolutely right. So Yosef. she is. She does sort of have this history of like uh, sleeping around, not to not to shame or anything like that. No, I like, think she uses it as a type of currency. Yeah, definitely. 
And I think that adds to her survivor's guilt. Right. Because Again, she's, so she's yeah, she's doing what she has to do. Although I think her encounter with Stingo at the end is truly from a place of like love. I think, or maybe not love, at least affection. Right? She cares a lot about Stingo. And so I think, as modern Americans with uh, very few problems in our lives, right, we we tend to think of sex as something sacred, infidelity rather as something sacred, binary. Right? You're you're being faithful or you're not. Right. And uh, we are never put in a position that we had to operate in those sort of circumstances. Right. And we're white men. I mean, there's and that we're, too. we're heterosexual <laughs> white men. So like, we don't have to, that's just something that, you know. Absolutely. But I also want to point out that like, in absolute, in no way uh, am I like condemning the character right. of Sophie, right? Yeah. Because she, by all means, she has to survive. And I think that brings me to her choice itself, right? Because yeah. she was given the chance to save one. And I don't think of it as um, her doing anything condemnable, saving the boy no. instead of the girl. The boy is obviously older because he's walking while the girl's being carried. Yeah. And she might make a rough calculation in her head saying, my son has a better chance to survive than my right. daughter because boys are more valued at that time, clearly. But also that he's older and maybe he'll stand up to the concentration camps better. So right. this brings me, I'm stealing a theme from you, out from under you. Take I want it. to talk about the tragic figure or the tragic hero. Now, this I know most from Soren Kierkegaard or Soren Kierkegaard, depending on how you pronounce it. Danish philosopher, so our Danish listeners, I know there are one or two, can let me know if it's Kierkegaard or it's Kierkegaard. But tweet us. Tweet, tweet. Tweet us or email us, right? That email still works, uh, I promise. <laughs> it does. In any case, Kierkegaard talks about Agamemnon, uh, the king of Troy, and his positioning as a tragic hero, as Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard says, he has to be a king and he has a daughter. And at a point, he has to either sacrifice his daughter or let his kingdom down. Uh, I'm being very vague here because I don't want to get too deep into it. But the thing is, he wants to be a good father, not kill his daughter. But he has to be a good king. One's a duty ethically, one's a duty sort of socially or Mm -hmm. familially. And so one sort of supersedes the other, but whatever choice he makes he loses on the other end, right? So mm-hmm. the tragic figure is stuck between two choices, neither of which allows him or her to fulfill their ethical obligations. And Sophie is in that. So Sophie's choice, she's a tragic figure. She's a modern tragic figure. Right. Yeah, definitely. I'm on board with that 100%. Uh, another thing I want to talk about with theme is that there's a binary structure to this film that bleeds into itself a lot. Okay. We can think about life or death. Yes. We can think about Stingo or Nathan. Yeah. Right? How many scenes is Sophie positioned between Stingo and oh, Nathan? Oh, constantly, yeah. In in positioning that I'm like, I don't think I have my lover <laughs> that right. close to my best friend, right? Not anything wrong with the people I associate with, but it just <laughs> seems like an odd sort of thing. The idea is that there's things set up at odds like that, but always sort of breaking down or crumbling in. So... Mm-hmm. At that, at that point, right, that nexus, I think that's where the movie really is set and where things happen, right? Yeah. And you mentioned this earlier. I want to bring us back to it, the the nexus, if you will, again, of beauty and death. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, Ample Make This Bed by Emily Dickinson, which comes up twice, right? Yes. Because when Nathan and Sophie commit suicide, they're in their bed and they're entwined, mm-hmm. which their faces are, uh, you know, they're deathly, obviously, but they're also can be misconstrued as passionate Mm -hmm. or pleasure-focused, right? Right. 
which I think calls into mind uh, Dickinson's poem because I looked some stuff up about it. I wasn't familiar with that poem myself, but I'm not a huge poetry guy. Right. But we hear about, in that that poem, it talks a lot about this bed, and we can also compare that to a coffin, right? So there's sort of a conjoined uh, nature between beauty and death, as in sex and death, or sexuality and death. You lie in a bed to sleep, to make love, but also you lie in a coffin to die. Silence, Mm -hmm. tranquility, or death. There's a lot of mixing here. I think that adds to that binary. Yeah. And I think this film, in a lot of places, is about sex and death. Definitely. Nathan says, after the first fight, when he returns, we're dying, Sophie. Yeah. And, of course, we can make the, the old comparison, the little death. Yeah. To orgasm versus the large death. Right. Well, and I mean, and so much of this film is, is really sexually charged. I mean, Nathan, or not Nathan, um, Stingo moves in and immediately hears, you know, the chandelier shaking because his upstairs neighbors are going to town. He's got, there's that whole little chunk with the, with the girl that he goes on that date with that like all she keeps saying like she keeps talking about fucking she's like yeah fuck fucking she says fuck like so many times and i was that scene still confuses me so to give our audience (laughs) some grounding he there's at the beach and all of a sudden this very provocatively dressed woman talks about fucking and then he's like ah i remember her and i was like okay so they had some good times and then he goes to her house and she's like you want something to drink he's like oh i'm not sure and then immediately down the ground Yeah, yeah they're going at it and then she's just saying fucking the whole time. Yeah, she says it. Like, she says the word over and over and over. Such fucking such beautiful fucking, I think, is what she says. Uh, yeah. And so, and uh, this is before we know conclusively that Stingo is a virgin. But he talks about it. He's got some ridiculous. These voiceovers. These voiceovers are ridiculous. Are when bad. he's got these They're ones where bad. he's like. Because uh, he says in that scene something like, you know, that uh, Nathan had found the the cure to my indubitable horniness or something like that. Yeah. It's like some ridiculous like, shit. And then that's how I became a man. And you're right. like, what are we doing here? Right. And so then he like fools around this girl, but then it turns out that, because he finds out that like she's home alone for the weekend, her parents are out of town. And he's like, we get to spend a whole weekend together. Yeah, so he's like, he's going to get it on. And then he finds out when he starts to like really stuff, like I think he takes his dick out or something. It's when he unzips his pants and he yeah. forces her to touch it. And she's like, she freaks out, and it turns out she's in like psychotherapy because she could, she could say the word, but not do the act. Yeah, she's got just this... gotten to vocalization, right? <laughs> Which makes her a victim of trauma as well, right? right. So that's also. And I wondered if that was related to World War II or the Holocaust, because this is not set in 1947. Yeah. Just after the war, Sophie doesn't talk about the camp, which I believe was discouraged at the time that you could not talk about that mm. experience there. And Nathan's. Uh, obsessed among other things with hunting down the escaped Nazis right, right. yeah so uh, I wonder if maybe that the the chunk with that girlfriend is some sort of rehearsal for what happens later with Sophie or if what? nothing else it gives flavor to trauma and sex and life and yeah. life experience but you know what you asked me I don't know if, did you do we start the podcast with this or did we talk right before it where I was talking about how long this goddamn film was that that whole little chunk with the girlfriend you could cut that yeah I that's was like that's like 15 that. 20 minutes that I could have done without 
One thing I couldn't go without, though, is the sort of beginning scene. After the voiceover, I could trash all those voiceovers until the very end one. I think that one does fairly well. Yeah. But the first one is when I was like, what is this film? This voiceover already reads to me as campy. Yeah, tonally, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this film. Like, the yeah. voiceovers certainly don't. They're, he, I mean, it's like it's like the, the, the colonel from KFC talking, I, and then I went to Brooklyn. And yeah. like, I mean, it's like ridiculous. And then there are those. There are a couple of scenes where he like opens the door, and Nathan and Sophie are in those ridiculous outfits, or like this where they show up, and Nathan they're in this like Gone with the Wind thing, and he's got that Stephen Foster's. He's got old folks at home play. Yeah. Like, what is happening? But I think maybe some of that is to reflect like Nathan's Nathan character. Is, yeah, Nathan's out of his mind. Yes. Well, this, okay. So the, I want to get back to the first scene because I think this illustrates very well. What you were talking about. You mentioned this earlier. He walks in on his door after he gets his spam, right? He's yeah, got, he's got like spam. 300 cans of spam. There's a book on his door and it's Walt Whitman's poetry. Mm-hmm. And there's a letter from Nathan and Sophie. You know, you're going to be the next great American writer from this. You know, you come to the South, the North, New York, like Whitman himself did. Here you go. And then before this, he hears the chandelier and then they're fighting, right? Mm-hmm. So he sees the fight and then we see Nathan's kind of comes up to him and says oh you get off on our show you want to go lynch some some coons is what he says right and right. so he's you're all like oh f this guy <laughs> you know like right. i hate him but then you see really sort of sensitive side of nathan when he reads uh stingo's novel and toasts him on the bridge right and so it's, there's you know it's obviously it's schizophrenic character he is bipolar at that too well and, and actually what this reminds me too just to jump back to that idea of guilt and atonement that i think is happening in this film nathan does that over and over he's always talking to him about the south he's like he's talking to him about southern sports lynching people all this sort of stuff and he does it several times and so i think there's certainly some like weird south north guilt going on well there. here's the oh absolutely uh but also this may reflect Styron's fingerprints, right? Oh, yeah. So, young Southern writer from Virginia goes north. That is exactly William Styron's uh, life experience, yeah. right? So, he inserted himself into his book, as a lot of writers are wont to do, which I find so deplorable, because it's like, you're a writer. I know. And speaking as a writer as well, I kind of, this is like a pet peeve of mine, I guess. As a writer, can't you imagine anyone other than yourself being a protagonist in your in your I book? Know. Well, Matt, do you hear this? Yes, I those hear are this. my what hands is... being heavy. <laughs> God, I know. So there, that was certainly heavy-handed, and the whole thing because, of course, the novel that Stingo is writing is autobiographical as well. Right, which I so mentioned again, at the beginning to talk about, like you know, him <laughs> appropriating truth to. Yeah sort of own uh it almost seems like this that that stingo was writing this novel to show his mother that he really does love her right and this is his this is his atonement right like you mentioned mm-hmm. about atonement and guilt he felt guilty for not loving his mother enough right yeah. and, and sophie's like oh that's not true he's like no no really i didn't love her enough and then she yeah. died so he's got this misplaced guilt and this writing yeah. of the novel is to sort of rework those things to make that right in his mind so i think yeah. that's all carried through and I think this is pretty well done. And I want to bring us to our pivotal scene because we're yeah, kind of running along already. Um, but we're, which is good, though, because we really both have a lot to say about this film. Mm-hmm. So the pivotal scene, it's, it's a little bit before halfway through the film. And you really you could pick a lot of different pivotal scenes for this. I know it's but, such a long film, and there are so many yeah, important scenes. But I picked this one uh, in which Sophie 
um, we sort of get an inkling that there's more to her than simply the Auschwitz, right? Mm-hmm. Experience of her life. So uh, let's go ahead and take a listen. We'll talk a little bit about it afterward. All right. I mean, it was good. They tried to help you, you know, they tried to, they try, but I knew that Christ had turned his face away from me and that only a Jesus who no longer cared for me could kill those people that I loved. Leave me alive with my shame, oh God. So I went to that church and I took the glass. I kneeled down and I cut my wrist, but I didn't die, of course. Of course not. There are so many things you don't understand. There's so many things that I can't, cannot tell you. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. Just trust me. Okay, so this is where Sophie talks about her attempt at suicide and how she couldn't even do that. She also mentioned shame, right? Mm-hmm. So you talk about guilt and atonement. I'm not so sure. Maybe this is a mishandling by the film, the director rather, but I'm not so sure that she's looking for atonement. She talks about shame, and shame is different than guilt, right? Yeah. Because there's two kind of cultures in the world. There is guilt cultures and there are shame cultures. Right. Shame culture, Spartans, when they had to take soldiers or children becoming soldiers so boys rather uh, out into the field they had to steal to survive and if they were caught stealing they're punished greatly but uh, stealing is tacitly allowed as long as you don't get caught so shame cultures just care about the knowledge of it right not whether or not that they did the act but whether or not they were caught in it sure whereas guilt cultures western cultures cultures mostly touched by christianity Oh, and Sophie's Catholic. Yeah, I mean, let me yep. tell you, the heavy burden of Catholic guilt. We internalize, as Western uh, guilt-based cultures, we internalize wrong action. So she says her shame, not her guilt. So I think that might be an interesting distinction. But that might just be sort of by and by. But I don't know if we have an answer for that. Uh, I just kind of wanted to position that for our audience because... Yeah. I think that's interesting because you're talking about guilt and atonement. I agree that the film is a lot about that, but well, she says she shame. says my shame in yeah. that scene. Yeah, but this is also from the director that directed The Devil's Zone, in which Brad Pitt plays a IRA uh, resistance oh. fighter and Harrison Ford's a cop, and is pretty laughably bad. Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to maybe some levity with this mm-hmm. that <laughs> perhaps we might be looking too far into it who knows i don't know so i do have one question before we get on to whatever else we're going to do next do how what what genre do you think this film is in oh boy um like if you were to pick a genre i would say it's a literary drama 
Yeah, I guess Cause that's... it relies so heavily on a informed audience to sort of put together some pieces, yeah. thematically speaking. But it's also got so much melodrama. It's it's got a romantic storyline, important romantic storyline. But I wouldn't necessarily call it a romance. I don't know that I would either, but I think you could make an argument for it. It's a rom com. Rom com, yeah, a light rom com. <laughs> what I did for the spoiler audio last episode after we watched Goodfellas is it sort of it's the trailer yes. and it sets it up as sort of a rom com that goes right. dark. You have to watch that trailer. It's so kind of messed up. When oh you no, watch I've seen it. Yeah. Film. Well, I mean, and that's the thing, like because it is, it's sort of like it just feels like there's lots of you know, if you watched any certain moment in the film, you could pick out five or six different moments. I think that would show you a very different film, right? Because this thing's so long. And there's like 40 minutes of it through our amber-tinged memory glasses of right. Auschwitz, which is useful. I could, done, I could have done without the filter, but uh, yeah, a large chunk of that film does not come back to it. We're not a flashback for a large period of time. Yeah. Well, right, and even, so, yeah, some of the, because, I mean, is this a, a historical drama? Because, but, but this is the thing, I mean, you could probably cut out some of the stuff in Auschwitz that just doesn't really have much of a bearing on the, like the strange scene with the, the with the girl, with the girl, yeah. the, 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 the little Nazi girl. She's like, you're a scum and you're a thief. Let me show you my baby pictures. Yeah. So, like, again, there's just a lot of stuff going on here. Now, Well, I think that scene just illustrates how Sophie knows how to sort of navigate children. Right. Because she's a mother. And so she's like, oh, where did you get this this design? Oh, it's my medal. Let me talk about this. And so when the moment comes where she can give her up, when she can tell Hess, her father, this woman tried to steal my radio, Mm -hmm. she doesn't because she's too enthralled with showing her, her her memory book. Yeah. So maybe that's just showing Sophie's ability to navigate the world based yeah. on her experiences. Yeah, I think maybe to show that Sophie is a savvy character. And by the way, Meryl Streep did win an Academy Award for Best Actress for this film. She damn well better have. Right, which completely deserved. Meryl Streep, be still my beating heart. Hey, so Ethan, let's move to our three questions because we are we got it. We got so excitable about this film. I know that we just eschewed all normal. Uh, order and I Meryl Streep does that to me, man. Oh. <laughs> and Meryl Streep makes you uh, fluttery. Oh yeah, when you flit about. <laughs> well, Ethan, do we care about this film? Yes, I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's well done, well structured, and it makes it really successful because I didn't think I was going to like it based on the first voiceover. Yeah, and then based on how much we were going into reading poems and stuff, and I was like, okay, this is sort of the literary masturbatory. Uh, film and then it sort of took on a different meaning for me and at the end Ample Make This Bed actually like came across really th- strongly for me yeah. and I said okay you've won me over I think I would disagree with you and say that I don't know that it's necessarily well structured but it works because there's just enough of it and there's enough good in it because there is some bad stuff in this that I you know I could have definitely done without but overwhelmingly I would say the rest of it sort of outshines it because I mean and Meryl Streep Meryl Streep's performance is just out of this world it's very very good so do we care about this film I would say yes if only for Meryl Streep's masterful performance as a strong uh, woman what about what do we owe this film well obviously we owe this film the concept of the Sophie's choice right which is a yeah, absolutely. The common parlance of Sophie's Choice. Right. Like, which kid would you choose? Uh, I don't know that I that there's anything that sticks out to me particularly other than that. 
you know, I, I mean, I think that's really sort of the big thing. This idea of 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 the Sophie of the Sophie's choice, and then we talked about this what two weeks ago when you know we'd said, I mean, I know what a Sophie's choice is, but mm-hmm. I don't know anything else about this film. And it's sort of commonly used now to be like ironic or uh, sardonic to say, right. oh yeah, it was real Sophie's choice for something that wasn't very difficult. Should I wear my blue socks or black socks? It was real, right. real Sophie's choice, right? So that's where it kind of comes in now with our young millennials uh, running rampant <laughs> throughout the world. Right. Uh, yeah, so I agree with you. I think that's what we owe to this film. But I also, I told you this before that we started recording, I also think the modern understanding of the tragic figure, the tragic hero, we're not relying on Agamemnon anymore. So right, yeah. So regards Agamemnon, we're relying on Sophie and Sophie's Choice, I think illustrates that beautifully for a modern audience. Yeah, sort of a, mo- a modern retelling of of this character that you know we see throughout literature and history and all that but i think a, a you know a 1982 update of it right i think is important absolutely yeah and that has stuck with people right i mean mm-hmm. it really has because you could ask almost anybody uh, you know what 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 is sophie's choice about and they'll be able to tell you i would be i think you would be hard pressed to find somebody who wouldn't be able to sort of tell you that it's about some chick who has to choose which of her kids to kill Right, and even I knew that before I'd watched the film. Yeah. So that leads me to my last question is, does it hold up? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's not much... This this certainly isn't uh, a film where, like, it's not laden with heavy special effects. You could almost stage this as a play. Meryl Streep looks as good as she... She looks as good as always. Um, and her performance holds up, I think, generically, as much as this is a bit of a mishmash it holds up the only thing i think that maybe would hurt it is that it is long right yeah so i think that two hour 37 minute timestamp is really going to do it detriment if it were shown in theaters in 2016 yeah but i also do agree it does hold up very little that i can see and point to and say that's very dated yeah i think it's done very well uh in that you don't really see through it as an older you know 30 plus year film right and it helps that it's a period piece right that it's set in the 40s yes absolutely it helps that it's a period piece in 1947 it makes it easier to disguise some of those things yes and people today are still i mean there's a fascination with nazis and world war ii that well and in fact it was just pearl harbor day four days ago i know and so I got to think a little bit about that. Uh, there's a, a sub submarine down in Galveston, um, which is only about 45 minutes from where I live. That's the only American submarine to have sank, I believe, a Japanese aircraft carrier, I think wow. it is. I could be wrong. Um, but some ship during Pearl Harbor or after. So we have that one down there. And I thought, oh, that's so cool because I've been down there. I've seen that sub. And uh, it's right next to Texas A&M Galveston. So I've mm. done some some presentations down there oh good but you had mentioned how long this film is yeah you'll be happy to know that our next film number 90 on the list swing time is only an hour and 47 minutes swing time i don't think or I've maybe it's an swing. hour 37 and then sixth sense which is number 89 that's only an hour 37 oh so, we're doing sixth sense yeah we get a slight little reprieve from the longer films which i think yeah. will be much needed but our audience should know because it's very very important next week so before our next episode, before we see Swing Time, we will have part two of The Rundown. The Rundown. Where Ethan and I will give about one or two sentences for the ten films we've watched in a very short period of time. We'll probably get that done under a minute. It's Under be... a minute. <laughs> 60 seconds or less or your money back. 
or your money back. So that's going to be exciting. I look forward to it, and I hope you look forward to it. But as always, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. There will be spoilers! There Will Be Spoilers is hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. We're produced each week by Matt Bazell. Our artwork is by Becca Knight. You can find her on Twitter at Becca the Knight with a K. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. He's all over the internet. Check him out. We love him. You can find us on Twitter at SpoilersCast. Tweet at us. Tweet, tweet. And we're on Facebook at There Will Be Spoilers. And don't forget, you can always email us your questions or comments at SpoilersCast at gmail.com. We love listener email. And remember, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. And there will be spoilers. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. Listen, Don't... no one could teach you to dance in a million years. Take my advice and save your money. Miss Carroll, how do you think this school can exist if you turn away applicants? What? You're discharged. But, Mr. Get your things and go. But I... Get out. Well, no, no, that's quite all right. Don't you worry. I'll find you another instructress right away. But you now, you stay right there. So this is the way you treat your customers. Well, I certainly don't treat them to sandwiches. Get out of here. Miss Anderson, what is the meaning of this? What's gotten into everybody this morning? My sandwich got into him. You're fired. Okay, swivel puss. And it might interest you to know that I've also discharged Miss Carroll. You've discharged Penny? Why? Oh, uh, why, for no reason at all. Uh, please see her. But she said she couldn't teach you anything. Oh, well, she was just trying to flatter me. <laughs> yes, she's the most wonderful little teacher I've ever heard of. <laughs> it's most ex Oh, uh, Miss Carroll, I want to show Mr. Gordon how much you've just taught me. No, never mind. Oh, thank you very much. That's very sweet of you. I'm, uh, please. I'm very anxious for Mr. Gordon to see this because I think it's the most interesting experiment. Now, um, how did you say that last step went? Uh, uh, oh, yes. Uh, Shall we try it right through? Won't you sit down, Mr. Gordon? <laughs>